It's 836, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. i got to tell you, as a Brewers fan, I, I am thrilled. Uh, five and four on a very, very difficult road trip. Um, when they left ten days ago, they were one game behind the Cubs. They come back two games behind the Cubs. But this is a road trip that the season could have easily gotten away from them on. But they end up playing some good baseball, winning, taking two out of three games from both the Colorado Rockies and the Los Angeles Dodgers in some really, really well-played games. The Cubs, who had a pretty easy stretch of scheduling, ended up uh, not taking advantage of this. Now, again, I don't know where this all plays, but isn't it great? You know, Labor Day is next week, and... And we're looking at, again, meaningful baseball. What a great surprise. And you can hear the games, of course, here on 620 WTMJ. We start today's show like we start off every show. Three big things. Story number one, Houston. I um, I, I just I have been mesmerized by watching what has been happening in the, the, the Houston Corpus Christi, Galveston area over the last several days. We here in Wisconsin have to deal with a lot of potential natural disasters. We have to deal with the potential of tornadoes during the tornado season. We have to deal with the potential for blizzards on occasion. But, you know, we we don't have to deal with, with hurricanes as a general rule. Every once in a while, we get hit by monster, monster rainstorms. Remember back in 2010 when we had that just intense period of rainfall that fell over a, well, a several-hour period. You had the big sinkhole that developed on Oakland Avenue in Milwaukee. One of my very, very close friends, her, her basement, as did many people, you know, you had sewer backups, so that there was caused by just the incredible amount of water that was coming in. So you had all that damage that was done. And then a couple of weeks later, you had some massive rainfalls as well. But we don't have to deal with the potential of, of hurricanes. I mean, yeah, we, we get some bad weather, and you have to deal with it. But, you know, hurricanes are nothing to fool around with. I was telling the story earlier. Um, on Thursday, it was Thursday night, I was I was having dinner, and I, I ran into a couple who spend August up here, up in, in southeastern Wisconsin, um, but they live in Houston. And they were getting ready to head back to, to Houston, which is where they live 11 months out of 12. And I remember having this conversation. They were saying, well, you know, we, we're obviously going to be watching what's going on um, and making ultimately a decision. My guess is those folks are probably still in Missouri to this day. But the devastation has just been incredible because you're, you're not just talking about the, the, the event. The, the tornado that blows through and then everything is over. Here you have this hurricane that has made landfall and even though it is diminished, it's no longer a hurricane, it's now a tropical storm and it's dumping enormous quantities of rain on this area. I mean, you're, you're talking about 30, 40, 50 inches of, of rain into an area that is already incredibly low-lying. Now, I realize that hindsight is twenty twenty, but but here is the issue that a lot of people are grappling with. Unlike tornadoes that you rarely get notice of, you know, you might be told, oh, there's a risk for a tornado, but tornadoes kind of pop up, they hit, and and then they dissipate. You know, hurricanes are predicted. The, The folks at the National Weather Service had been pretty much predicting what was going to happen for several days in advance of Hurricane Harvey hitting. Yet... Local officials, and it's local officials who are responsible for this, made the decision 
that they were not going to order the evacuation of the city. And as a result, you have people who are now trapped in flooded areas. It is so bad. Then you, if you look at all the different stories that are out there, they're now calling out the National Guard. They're going to be sending thousands of people into Houston to help rescue people who are trapped as a result of the flooding. You have people who are being told to go up to the attic, go up on, on your roof. It is just massive, and it is amazing, the type of destruction. What's worse is it, this appears like it is be going, going to be continuing for several more days. And part of the problem is if you issue an evacuation order now, it's too late because you can't get out because the roads are, are flooded. So, you know, if you're there, you are pretty much stuck with this idea that they're going to maybe get another 10 to 15 to 20 inches of rain that they have nowhere to go with. Power, of course, is out to hundreds of thousands of people. Devastation is just amazing. And there's a lot of people who are now saying, why didn't we issue? Why wasn't an evacuation order issued? Now, the flip side of this is that this is the nation's fourth largest city. And if you issue the evacuation order, you know, what happens? Um, Back in 2000, I think it was 2005, when you had Hurricane Rita, they issued, and, and that was September of 2005, right after Katrina, they issued an evacuation order. And first of all, when Hurricane Rita hit, it wasn't as bad as they had predicted. That's number one. And number two, um, they, they believe that there's about 100 deaths connected to Hurricane Rita, but at least 60 of those deaths were caused by the evacuation itself. People were injured or died of heat stroke, waiting in traffic for nearly a full day. Um, Fights broke out on clogged highways. So when you're talking about a city the size of Houston, it's not that easy to evacuate. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand it is not that easy to evacuate. Nevertheless, given that this was predicted, given that people were talking about this as being a storm of the century, I think local officials, and I fully appreciate hindsight is 2020. I think local officials missed the boat by not issuing an evacuation order and as a result have made the situation worse. Now, that's not to say that people couldn't have gotten out of Dodge on their own, but the mayor and the folks that they work for locally decided, all right, we're, we're not going to issue the order I think they made a mistake. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should there have been an evacuation order, which might have, might have at least gotten some people out of that area, people who are now stuck um, waiting for the rain to stop, when and if that happens. 414-799-1620 is the number we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Big Story Number 1. It's 843. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 846, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Look, there's no question. This is a situation where local officials are probably damned if you do and damned if you don't. They made a conscious decision, though, knowing what the forecasts were going to be, not to issue an evacuation order. Now, obviously, it's very difficult to do that when you're talking about the fourth largest city in the country. But as a result, because there was no evacuation order, a lot of people made the decision to stay. And now the truth is that they can't get out. There's just, I mean, I've been reading these stories all weekend. Um, what, what they're saying right now is that um, th- there's nowhere to go right now because officials are saying, hey, 
um, it, you're, if you leave your home, you are in a situation where it might be more dangerous because the streets are flooded. Um, people won't know where you are. You might find yourself in a position where we're, we're into like search and rescue types of situations. It, it's just a bad scenario. And I fully acknowledge that I don't think you necessarily need the government to be telling you to get out of Dodge. You know, we had this conversation at the end of last week. Candidly, if I was looking at these weather forecasts and I had somewhere to go, which I understand not everybody has somewhere to go, I would have been heading out. I wouldn't have wanted to fool with this, especially knowing what the forecasts were and the fact that, I mean, this is August in Houston. So they're predicting this rain is going to continue for another several days. You've got an enormous number of people who are out of power. And my guess is that power is not coming back on anytime soon. So you're talking about probably 90 plus degree heat, 100 degrees humidity, 100 percent humidity and inches and inches and inches of rain that continue to fall. Can you imagine how awful that must be? Which is why I don't know that you necessarily need the government to tell you to get out. But in this particular situation, I think local officials made a huge, huge mistake in not issuing an evacuation order to the extent that that might have, and I say might have, helped some people get out of town ahead of time. Now it's too late. If you go out on the streets as a practical matter, you're, you're putting yourself in more danger. But this is one where I think local officials just ended up missing the boat, no pun intended, when it came to the opportunity to tell people to get out. I think all we hope for now is that, you know, the people who are there um, are able to just kind of hunker down. You hope this rain stops. And the devastation, I think, once the rain finally subsides, I think is going to be just – it, it is going to be catastrophic. You cannot use that word enough that the damage that water ends up doing and the impact of flooding. And you do wonder, you know, how long it is going to take uh, Houston and that entire area down around the Gulf, how long it's going to take them to come back from this type of devastation. All right. Big story number two. Another day, another carjacking and another death. It, it's just again, it's one of these. It's a horrible story, but it's a story, unfortunately, that we see play out. The carjacking aspect we see play out almost on a daily basis around here. And unfortunately, the death due to the aftermath of the carjacking happens all too frequently as well. All right, here's apparently what happened. 1130 at night, um, Saturday evening, near 20th and Mineral, a car, a Ford Focus was stolen in a carjacking. Police were able to locate the carjacked vehicle um, around 27th and Locust, around 2.15 in the morning. Police tried to stop the fleeing vehicle. Vehicle, of course, this happens all the time in Milwaukee. The police put on the bubble lights, try to pull over the car, and the people speed away in the car. I don't get the sense that there was a lengthy police chase that was involved, in part because apparently um, the people driving the stolen car crashed into a light pole near 33rd and Locust. Um, So this is only about six blocks. They find the stolen vehicle in the area of 27th and Locust. The car thieves, the carjackers, they take off. They only get about six blocks. They drive into a light pole, and apparently there is a 25-year-old woman, a female passenger in the car, who dies as a result of of the crash. Um, two other 
guys who are in the car um, um, end up being, I think, taken into custody um, as a result of this crash. So here you have another day, yet another carjacking, and you have people who are dead. In this case, one of the passengers in the vehicle you know, has died as a result of this because people make the decision to try to run. Now, interestingly, by my count, today is the day that Ed Flynn is supposed to, he was given 30-day, remember he asked for a 30-day extension. The Fire and Police Commission directed the Milwaukee police chief essentially to change his pursuit policy and threatened him with disciplinary action if he didn't. Flynn asked for 30 days to craft a response, and by my count, today is the, today is the day that response is due. Now, I don't know if there's been some extensions or something like that, and, and maybe it's tomorrow, maybe it's the next day. By my count, it, it is today. But at least thus far, Ed Flynn has been steadfast in his position that uh, he, he just thinks that le- he thinks that chasing cars doesn't solve anything and puts people in added risk. Well, here you have a situation where there wasn't even much of a, of a chase. The car immediately tried to speed away, lost control, and you have one of the passengers in the carjacked vehicle. And I don't know if the woman was there when the car was carjacked or not. All I know is that she's cruising around in the carjacked car, but now she is dead. Our numbers four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, it, whether it's today or tomorrow or Wednesday or Thursday, Ed Flynn, the Milwaukee police chief, is going to have to grapple with the question of, do we encourage the police to try to do everything they can to apprehend vehicles that have been stolen, to apprehend people that are running from the police? I understand that when they begin chases, there will be situations where people end up losing their life, like happened the other night. In this case, it wasn't somebody who was innocent. It was somebody who was in the car who was part of the effort to flee. That being said, I think given the epidemic of car thefts that we have, given the epidemics of people who run from the police, and given the necessity to get these dangerous bad guys off the street, I think the police have to, have to, have to chase and do everything they possibly can to catch the perpetrators. And if that means that every once in a while you're going to have a perpetrator who loses control of the car and slams into a light pole and somebody ends up dead, the message is don't run from the cops. 414-799-1620, big story number two, another carjacking, another death as a result of an attempted flight from the police Does this change anybody's thinking as to whether the police should continue to try to apprehend people? I say absolutely not. 414-799-1620. If you're on the line, please hold on. We discuss next. It's 854. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 857. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right. um, Saturday evening, carjacking. The police see the car. Driver takes off, slams into a light pole. A couple blocks from where the chase starts, to the extent it's even a chase, because the car started to run, um, female passenger dead. How many times is this going to continue to happen? It doesn't change my opinion, though, that you need to get these bad guys off the street. We're joined now by Kenosha County Sheriff David Beth. Sheriff, good morning. Good morning, Jeff. What do you think? Uh, this is a tough one, and 
down here we still chase. We, um, I, I wholeheartedly believe in it, but we're more rural than Milwaukee, so that it might be a different call up there. But down here, we have the carjackings. We have, well, I, I guess they more or less break into the car dealerships and take right. off. Um, and uh, we 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 still pursue. And a lot of times, those cars will get into an accident, but they'll get into an accident like what it sounds like what you had on Saturday. And uh, the driver and whoever's in the car will get hurt, and we'll catch them, and, and the chase is done. Sheriff, why uh, do you think so many people are running? Here, here, in, here in, the, in the city of Milwaukee, it's now kind of a cottage industry, whether it's stolen cars or people who are dealing drugs. that It, it, it has now become commonplace for as soon as the police put on the, the lights for people to take off. That, that's, I don't remember that being the case, at least not until recently. I don't either. I mean, when... Um, and I think the, the non-pursuit policy definitely adds to that. And I, I don't exactly know, again, up there. I don't want to speak about Milwaukee. I know down here we still do it. Uh, things are a lot different now than when I started in 82. There right. were stories of, of my partners that we used to drive Rambler station wagons, and the passenger would get into the, into the back seat. They'd roll down the window, and they'd shoot the radiator out of the cars as they were going up the interstate. And I mean, things were different back then. But I wish technology would get to the point that you somehow, like uh, OnStar could do, disable a car in a chase. Um, right. So but, you just right. You just like like have some sort of giant kill switch. Now, of course, even you know you were talking about Kenosha, where your department has a chase policy. But even so, that doesn't mean that you you necessarily follow every chase through to conclusion. I mean, you you use discretion to decide whether or not it's it's worth it and whether or not you're going to put um, civilians or your officers in danger. Right. Oh, absolutely. Oh, the supervisor. It's very difficult for an officer involved in this to call off his own chase because he's so. You have tunnel vision, and you're watching that car. You're, you're trying your best to watch what goes on. So dispatch, the supervisors have to listen to what's going on. If it's, you know, school is letting out, um, sure. you know, it's a busy time of day. If it's you're, you're, you're on a, uh, a road that has a lot of traffic, you know, you ask all these questions, the speed that they're traveling, and what is the offense? I mean, if it's truly someone who blew a stop sign and there's nothing else, sure. and it's a busy time of day, you call it off, you get the license plate, you can't even deal with it later. Sure. No, sure. Thanks a lot for joining us this morning. And see, again, that makes sense to me. Thanks for the call. None of us who are advocating that you broaden the chase policy are saying that that means that you, you know, go 100 miles an hour down Wisconsin Avenue at, at 430 in the afternoon. I mean, obviously, you want to use discretion. But the bottom line is these stories are happening on a regular basis, and it, it just it needs to stop. It's 9 o'clock. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 9.08. This is Jeff Wagner. Glad to have you with us. Big story number three, and it is, in my opinion, one of the most undercovered stories of the last couple weeks. Now, in launching into this, I want to say at the beginning, there, I am not arguing in any way, shape, or form that there is a moral equivalency between the people who show up and, and protest the right-wing hate groups and the right-wing hate groups th- themselves. I, I, I'm not a, at all. And whenever you see the people who are associated with the KKK or these white supremacist groups or these anti-Semites, um, they are sleazebags. They deserve to be denounced. Fine. There is, there is another group, though, which operates under the radar screen and doesn't show up just to protest the right-wing hate groups, but rather shows up to protest 
well, I don't know, pro-Trump supporters and people who aren't white supremacists and people who aren't members of the KKK. And this is admittedly a small subset, but a subset of these protest movements. And it's it, it's the Antifa. The, they call themselves the anti-fascists. And they are a militant, small, but militant splinter form of protester who believes that in order to counter the right-wing trend in this country, they have to, well, use what they describe as self-defense tactics. Now, this has played out in a number of different areas. In Portland, um, a couple months ago, when there was going to be one of these sort of conservative rallies that was there, I mean, police you know, made, made arrests and, and seized. I'm looking pictures of this. I mean, caches of what I would describe, what you could only describe it as weapons, bottles, rocks, spears, knives that had been assembled in some part to be carried by this fringe left-wing protest group. In Phoenix, you know, when you had the, the big Trump rally, you know, last week, you had the huge Trump rally that generated all the controversy. There were thousands of people who showed up in the street outside the convention hall who were intent on, again, exercising their legitimate First Amendment right to protest, you know, Donald Trump and the people going in. And that's fine. But in that group, a small subset were the, the, these people, that this, this militant anti-fascist, these alt-left extremists who came looking for trouble. Um, accounts vary. But it, it's pretty apparent that um, this group of anti-Trump protesters, which, again, is this small subset, um, showed up with gas canisters that they started throwing at the police, along with rocks and bottles. So in many respects, if you see these films and you see the video of the police and the riot gear and stuff, um, that was in some measure precipitated, not by the larger, more peaceful gathering, but rather by these hardcore, you know, anarchists that had come and were intent on attacking the police and using violent measures. Now, this played out again over the weekend. There was a, a conservative rally in Berkeley, California, that was, you know, going to be in this park. A large number of of people showed up, as they said several thousand, to, you know, demonstrate in, in what they called a, a rally against hate, you know, a uh, protest that would be a counter-protest to what was going on, the, the conservative protesters. Okay, so you've got this. What apparently happened is, and th- this account is absolutely amazing, a group of more than 100 hooded protesters, so they're masked, with shields emblazoned with the words no hate and a flag identifying themselves as anarchists, busted through police lines, avoiding security by officers to take away possible weapons. The anarchists then mix in with the crowd of largely peaceful protesters and then begin attacking the conservative protesters. Um, the, the police chief, the response is kind of interesting. He says, well, 
the potential use of force became very problematic given all the people that were there. Once the anarchists arrived, it was clear there would not be dueling protests between left and right, so the police chief ordered his officers out of the park and allowed the anarchists to storm in, which then led to the assault of some of the right-wing protesters that were there. And I guess I go through this story simply because you don't hear about the left-wing violence. And again, I am not suggesting that the vast number of people, for example, who took to the streets in Phoenix to protest President Trump um, were anarchists and were there designed to create violence. But one of the untold stories that is out there is that there there is a militant group. Um, they call themselves anti-fascists, but what they are is violent anarchists who are making the point of showing up at these different events, mixing in with leg- what I'm going to call the legitimate counter-protesters and attacking the police and attacking the conservative protesters. And you don't hear much about these type of... Of tactics, And to me, again, it is the double standard that's there. And again, I don't suggest that every or even, you know, any significant necessarily proportion. They estimate that there were like 2,000 of the quote-unquote counter-protesters in Berkeley over the weekend. They estimate that there were about 100 anarchists. But when you have people showing up with masks on, wading into the crowd, my question is, How can the authorities, and this is what they did in San Francisco yesterday in Berkeley, they just apparently let them go. The police chief said, well, you know, once we saw these people, you know, show up, we decided, well, you know, we're we're not going to get in confrontations, so we let them come in. All right, just like... I don't understand, you know, if you have, you know, people showing up in KKK hoods, I mean, yeah, yes, maybe you you don't want to necessarily let them storm in and mix in with other legitimate protesters. How can the police, again, not not catch the people who show up armed and check and masked and check them to determine whether or not they are carrying weapons 414-799-1620 that's the accident mortgage talk and text line again this is my frustration there's there's a lot of there are obviously hate groups that operate on the right they deserve to be shouted down they deserve to be called out and there's a lot of legitimate protest out there to these various groups and i think we should all support it but, you know, interestingly, this this group, and I'm talking specifically about this Antifa, th- this, this group, I think this particular group is as much of a hate group and as much of a terrorist organization, a domestic terrorist organization, as a lot of the right-wing crazies that are out there. Let's start with Bill in Waterford. Bill, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yeah. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, I, I do agree that they are domestic terrorists. I think that when the police see... These people coming in with shields and masks on their face, and they have weapons in their hands. They ought to take them and put them under arrest and do whatever kind of force that they necessarily need to make sure that they don't get into the crowd. And we yeah, because you know what they're there for. Them. They're there for trouble. Absolutely. You bet. And we ought to arrest them, make it a felony, because assaulting the police officer as well as the crowd. Okay, and that's how I would solve that problem. And these, these, these. Oh, got to yep, oh, so got, got let you go. Can't say that word on the radio. Can't say that word on the radio. Got it there. But I, I understand the sentiment 
that, that's out there. I mean, it, it, this is, look, we, we have a legitimate right to protest. And what we need to do is we need to identify and criticize the hate speech that is coming from the right. And you need to respond to it by legitimate protest and denounce it. I am 100% in favor of that. But you have these small splinter groups on the left, and it is not representative of the mass of the protesters, but it's the people that are showing up. It is the people that are throwing the tear gas canisters. It is people that are throwing the rocks at the police. It is the people who are showing up masked and are attacking the people who are exercising their rights to protest. It is that subset which... I mean, they are domestic terrorists as well in their own right. Uh, Chuck Todd, a, a week ago, the guy on, on Meet the Press, did a disgraceful interview with one of the defenders of this group. And just like, uh, again, if you have one of these violent right-wing groups, just like you need to call them out and denounce them, the fact that we're going to ignore what is going on, again, with this small subset of people who are showing up with the intent to engage in violent activities, you can't allow that to happen. All right. Coming up next, I predicted last week that this was going to happen. I just did not believe it was going to happen as quickly as it did. The war on Gone with the Wind. I'll tell you all about it. It's 919. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 922. This is Jeff Wagner. The Brewers are back from the West Coast, and Bob Euchre is back in the booth. Tomorrow, the crew opens a six-game homestand by taking on the St. Louis Cardinals. Our coverage gets underway at 6.05 tomorrow night here on WTMJ. Brewers left for a just very, very difficult road trip, one game behind the Chicago Cubs. They come back only two games behind the Cubs um, with a lot of games to play against Central Division opponents. So they're, they're still... They're still in the battle, and um, I think if you would have talked to a lot of us when we were doing the opening day broadcast, we would not we would not have necessarily predicted this as we approach Labor Day. So every game matters, and you can hear it here on WTMJ. All right, there is of course now the huge battle that is going on involving Confederate monuments, and you've got people who now want to take uh, Confederate monuments out of graveyards. You have the battles that are going on to try to sanitize history. And it is, of course, now flipping over into the popular culture. One of the most popular novels of the 20th century was the book Gone with the Wind, which was written by Margaret Mitchell um, in the 1930s. Uh, it became a movie that was produced in 1939. And when you, if you look at lists of the best movies ever made. Gone with the Wind, along with Citizen Kane and a handful of others, are always on the list. Gone with the Wind, epic blockbuster. Gone with the Wind, the movie led to uh, um, an incredible amount. Let's see, at the time, it had uh, a record Academy Award. It got eight Oscars, including Best Supporting Actress for Hattie McDaniel, who became the first African-American Academy Award winner. Um, if you were to adjust ticket sales for inflation, um, Gone with the Wind continues to be the all-time box office champion. You know, again, ticket sales adjusted for inflation. Gone with the Wind regularly is shown on various movie channels. Like Turner Classic Movies shows it. it. It is just an epic movie. 
it is also controversial because the book and the movie um, have an arguably sympathetic portrayal of the South at the time of the Civil War. Um, and I guess say arguably sympathetic. I mean, the story is about the Scarlet O'Hara character, you know, played by Vivian Lee, and Clark Gable is, you know, one of the people who is, uh, again, arguably sympathetic to the South, and it shows plantation life, and it shows life during the Civil War, and many people look at Gone with the Wind as being kind of a, a tribute. That's probably not the best word, but like a tribute to the old South that was forever changed after the, the Civil War. All right, well, here's the, the follow-up. And, you know, it was funny because when we were talking about this story last week and we were talking about all the different things that are now being taken away from society and how do you deal with history, I mean, one of the questions that I asked was, you know, can you can, – can will this novel continue to be sold? Will it continue to be assigned to high school English classes? You know, can we – can you teach Gone with the Wind, you know, in a, in a public school? Can you give this novel, which was so incredibly popular, can we even, like, teach it to, to students anymore? And I was kind of tongue-in-cheek predicting, no, we, we probably passed that point. Well, here is the story. Um, there is – there's a movie theater theater the orpheum theater in downtown memphis tennessee and every summer they run a, a film festival where they feature um historic films um it's it's part of the, this summer movie series gone with the wind has been a staple of the summer movie series since like the summer movie theory series started they have now announced that after this year, they've already committed to show the movie. Um, they Actually, they showed it August 11th. They've now said, we're not going to show Gone with the Wind anymore. As an organization, this is what they say, whose stated mission is to entertain, educate, and enlighten the communities it serves. The Orpheum cannot show a film that is insensitive to a large segment of the local population. In other words... A 34-year-old tradition of showing Gone with the Wind as part of this festival is done, not because it's not popular, not because people aren't showing up, not because people don't want to see it on the big screen, but rather simply because they feel it is insensitive to a large segment of the local population. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think it is appalling. Now, look, this... This film festival can show whatever movies they want, but I think it is now appalling that political correctness has run amok to the point that we now have to start banning movies about, say, in this case, the the Civil War based on best-selling books because – People are unable to process that this is fiction, it is a movie, and some people might find it insensitive. And it is, I hate the phrase slippery slope, but it is a scary and a frightening slippery slope that we are starting down. So, do we need to ban Gone with the Wind? Should there be pressure not only in this movie series, but also on places like Turner Classic Movies or American Movie Classics or whatever, wherever you see this movie, do we have to stop showing Gone with the Wind because it is, quote-unquote, insensitive to some people who might watch it? 414-799-1620, we discuss next. It's 927. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 935, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up in about 10 minutes, remember that lawsuit, the class action lawsuit, 
filed against Subway because the foot-long sandwiches sometimes weren't a foot long. There is a new development that I'm going to tell you about in just a couple minutes, and we'll discuss. But right now we're talking about Gone with the Wind, which has been banned from a particular film festival in Memphis because, well, it's insensitive to certain parts of the community. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Dave in Green Bay. Dave, good morning. Good morning, sir. I think we're getting to a point of, I, I think we're getting to a point of just pure stupidity. Um, you know, we can't change history. We, we shouldn't change history. Um, I, I just think we are in a lot of trouble if this, we get some kind of a whirlwind going here and they want to ban everything sure. that had anything to do with the Civil War. Well, and this is a movie, too. I mean, th- th- Dave, this, this, this isn't talking, this isn't even a tribute to a Confederate general. This is a piece of fiction. It is a piece of art. It's a movie, for goodness sakes. Now we're not, we can't show these type of movies? Really? Are we gonna are we gonna ban Colonel Sanders statues in the KFCs? You know, are we are we gonna take down the Washington Monument? Where where does it end? And and these Antifa people, these people are crazy. They're they're similar to ISIS. Well, and, they're and they're they're dangerous. No, th- I mean, right? Without without going into too much detail, but but we're I gonna I, I want to talk about I want to talk. This is book banning. This is what it is. I mean, and where where does it stop? All right, one of my. One of my favorite authors, and when I go out and do speeches, I, I, I quote Mark Twain uh, occasionally. I mean, um, Mark Twain wrote books, and Mark Twain was a product of his time. Are, are we not? Are we not able to read Tom Sawyer? Are we not able to read Huckleberry Finn nowadays? Because there are stereotypical and arguably, no, forget arguably, there are stereotypical and offensive references to African Americans contained in the books. But Mark Twain was a product of his time. So now do we sanitize all, all of that? Are are we now going to be going through and and looking at different eras and saying, okay, well, this particular piece of fiction. Judged by 2017 standards, some might end up finding offensive. So now we, we can't even show it anymore. It's a movie, for goodness sakes. There are all sorts of pieces of fiction. There are all sorts of books that I find offensive. There are all sorts of movies that you probably find offensive. Would we argue that those movies should not be shown because we find them to be offensive? I would hope not. 414-799-1620. Linda in Milwaukee. Linda, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Yeah, I'm just appalled that they want to stop teaching our children about history. Um, The first thing that came to my mind this morning when I heard you talking about this was, um, and I don't know why it came to my mind, maybe because I'm German, the Holocaust. I don't want people to stop learning about that. I want them to know the devastation that happened so it stops, so it never happens again. Sure. Right. Our you, children need to know this. Yeah, what's the cliche? People who, who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, it's... Absolutely. I, I mean, right. No, thanks. See, and that, that, again, this is... It is frustrating to me because, I look, I... I appreciate there is this desire to say, okay, we're going to take 2017 sensibilities and, you know, we're going to use this to judge 
to judge the lives of people who lived in the 1600s or, or the 1700s. Well, okay, th- there's a problem with that because people are products of, of their time and societal norms appropriately change. But this is even scarier because this is fiction. The, these are works of, of fiction. And where is the left? You know, where are the people who scream about the book burners? You know, a lot of times when you will have the protests in the schools because some of the conservative groups show up and we think, hey, this is an inappropriate book because it talks about sexuality or whatever, and it's exposed to people who are too young. Where where, where are the book banners on this? Because th- this is the flip side of this. This is like, all right, it is a piece of fiction, um, but because we don't like it, we think it gives too much of a sentimental treatment to the old South, we, we're going to eradicate this because people might find it offensive. Well, okay, if, if you find it offensive... Then, then just don't go. Then, then, if it's too offensive and you can't process this, then just don't attend. You know the the event. Let's talk to Joe in Eau Claire. Joe, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Disney did the same thing with the movie Song of the South. Right. They buried that movie. You can't find it anywhere. Right, because that was based on Song of the South was based on the it was a musical adaptation of like the Uncle Remus things with Br'er Rabbit and again very very stereotypical yeah and and it became too much of a hot potato for Disney I guess I never thought that that would happen to Gone with the Wind though given the fact that again Gone with the Wind it is by box office standards adjusted for inflation the most popular movie of all time yep yep uh, no again th- thanks for, look if you can't process it. I mean, again, it's we, we now we now have to eliminate this type of stuff from from our culture, and, and that's what the, the scary thing is. Like, like I say, I mean, I, I mean, I think the book Gone with the Wind, which I read once a long, long time ago, and, and I think the movie, which I have seen on on many occasions. I mean, the movie stands up as an incredibly well made movie. But this was, I mean, this was one of the biggest movies of like the twentieth century. So now we're at the point where we can't show it because the content is too offensive to people. I will tell you, and I, I don't mean to exaggerate this, but it's getting to the point where it is almost reminiscent of what goes on in the Soviet Union, where, you know, you have, you know, the the one dictator that is now gets deposed and falls out of power, and so all the statues and tributes to that dictator disappear. Then you have the new dictator that comes in, and when he falls out of power, all the tributes to him go. I mean, really, it's, this, it's a movie. Let's talk to Lori in Port Washington. Lori, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? I am well, thank you. Okay, Gone with the Wind. Is it just too controversial to show nowadays? No, it is not. We're getting to the point in in our society where we're getting to Orson Welles, 1984. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. Seriously, seriously. And there was a movie and a book, Fahrenheit, I think it was 950. 451 by Kurt uh, Vonnegut, yeah. Absolutely. And we are to that stage where we're going to start burning books and changing society. And I agree with that lady about the Holocaust. There are young people that don't believe it really. Right, right. And you want to educate people. Thanks for before people email me. I misspoke. I know it was Ray Rad- Radbury that wrote Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> I, I, I know that. And I also know it wasn't Orson Welles who did 1984. That's George Ordwell. <laughs> I, I, got, I got both of those. But no, but I, but I certainly understand her, her premise there. It's like, all right, we're, we're now going to judge this stuff by, you know, what is offense. It, it, we're moving into 
really, really, I, I think, scary, scary territory. Let's talk to Christina in Shorewood. Christina, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. I think we need to ban the movie White Christmas, the movie that introduced us to Bing Crosby. Singing, uh, the movie is called Holiday Inn. Right. And Bing Crosby introduced us to the wonderful tune of White Christmas. Right. We need to ban that movie because there's a segment where Fred Astaire and his cast does a blackface routine for vaudeville. Right. So somebody might find that offensive, yeah. so maybe we better ban the movie White Christmas. Yeah. And in conjunction with Gone with the Wind, I went two years ago to the North Shore Cinema to see Gone with the Wind on the big screen. Right. And there was a woman sitting behind me, an African-American woman with her family, and we talked in the lobby afterwards. She told me she came from 27th and North to see that movie because it's her very favorite movie. Yeah, and, and her family were not offended by it. Well, right. I mean, I get, thanks for the call. I mean, yeah, it's... Look, I mean, I, I understand it. It is, it, it is stereotypical in, in many respects. I, I understand that, but at the same time, these are these are movies, and you know, movies, movies have the potential to offend people at, at some point in time, and that doesn't mean we we do away with it. Books have the potential to offend. That doesn't mean that we we don't show them. Lucy in Milwaukee. Lucy, good morning. You're on six twenty WTMJ. Hi, I think you're minimizing what Gone with the Wind was politically. I wouldn't ban it. Let's just start right there. I wouldn't ban it. I don't like banning books or movies. But I would put a disclaimer on. Margaret Mitchell set out deliberately to put into a book that what's called by historians who know something, the myth of the lost cause. Mm-hmm. Um, say the false history was created by the losing Confederates starting in 1868. Now, the problem is, Margaret Mitchell also wrote one of the very best love stories of the 20th century, and the movie is an absolute corker. I will never forget the line, tomorrow is another day. Right. Um, by the way, I'm a great-great-granddaughter of Southern slave owners. I don't take this stuff lightly. What I would do is I would have, a especially since this is a film festival, which is supposed to be educational, I would like both a disclaimer explaining that this is one view largely discredited of the Civil War and the pre and the antebellum South, and I would do a trailer um, showing something of the horrors of the real slave situation in the South. But no, I would not ban the movie or the book. It just gets people all excited and gives them a cause to say that the left is as bad as the right, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't have a problem. I mean, Lucy, thanks. I don't have a problem, I, I guess, if you, if you want to put a trailer in front of it or something, saying that this is, uh, again, this is based on a work of fiction that portrays a view of, uh, a glorified view of life on plantations. I mean, I, I guess I don't have a problem with that if you if, if they feel that it's necessary to do that, you know, as a preface. But I, I think people need to be concerned about, again, efforts to sanitize you know history um i guess my comment would be that this it's a movie and you know it, it people i think should maybe we need I, maybe we just don't give people enough credit i mean it it's it's a movie and i, I understand we go to movies and we think these things are, are real or we think they're necessarily accurate but at the same time do do we kneel do we need to now put 
disclaimers in front of of every movie that has a controversial take on history. Um, for Oliver Stone's JFK that goes off on these like weird conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination, do we need to put a disclaimer saying this depicts something that not a lot of people think uh, happened? I mean, a, a, do we need to put disclaimers on every work of, of fiction um, that, that's out there? And if so, you know, who decides who decides what's true? Who decides what gets the disclaimer and what does doesn't? Now, if this makes the issue go away, then, then fine. Put a preface on it. I mean, I, I don't really care ab- about that, but it's a piece. It's a piece of fiction, and I think most people. I mean, I guess maybe I'm giving people too many much credit, but you know, do we need to say? Oh, by the way, you know, um, the the woman who Vivian Lee, the woman who played Scarlett O'Hara, she was actually British, and you know, Clark Gable w- was an actor. He wasn't really Rhett Butler. I mean, at what point in time do, do you? Do you just simply say it's a work of fiction? It's 948. When we come back, an update on the subway footlong story. It is fascinating. There's a new court decision on this. It's not good for the lawyers. Stick around. It's 952. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Um, one of our texters says, you know what's next, Jeff? To Kill a Mockingbird is going to be on the chopping block. I guarantee it. He, he's absolutely right. I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee's, arguably, you could argue, one of the greatest, maybe it is the great American novel. Well, it has a very stereotypical approach, you know, set in the South, has a very stereotypical view of African Americans, which... Um, may have been, I mean, judged by 2017 standards, I'm sure is offensive to many, many people. Do we not show that great movie with Gregory Peck? Do we not? Do we now ban the book because of that? If you don't think it's going to happen, I'm here to tell you this is the 2017 we live in. All right, let us switch gears. You will may, perhaps remember, oh, going back a couple of years now, actually four years now, there was the controversy involving the Subway sandwich foot-long sandwiches. All right, here's here is the way, for example, I, I have in my hands a decision issued Friday by the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. This is written by uh, Judge Diane Sykes, an old friend of mine who is on the short list for the Supreme Court of next nomination. She'll be on the short list for it. Here's what she writes. In January of 2013, an Australian teenager measured his Subway foot-long sandwich and discovered it was only 11 inches long. He photographed the sandwich alongside a tape measure and posted the photo on his Facebook page. It went viral. Class action litigation soon followed. Plaintiff's lawyers across the United States sued Subway for damages and injunctive release under relief under state consumer protection laws. Ultimately, the suits were combined into multi-district litigation in front of Judge Edelman in the Eastern District of Wisconsin. That's based out of Milwaukee. Here's what Judge Sykes writes, though. In their haste to file suit, however, the lawyers neglected to consider whether the claims had any merit. They did not. Early discovery established that Subway's unbaked bread sticks are uniform and that the baked rolls rarely fall short of 12 inches. The minor variations that do occur are wholly attributable to the natural variability in the baking process and cannot be prevented. You know, you throw loaves of bread in the oven, they all start out the same, and because of the yeast or whatever, they they all rise a little bit differently. That much is common sense, and modest initial discovery confirmed it. As important, no customer is shorted any food, 
even if a sandwich roll fails to bake to the full 12 inches. Subway sandwiches are made to order in front of the customers. Meat and cheese ingredients are standardized, and the people who make the sandwiches add toppings in whatever quantity the customer desires. With no compensable injury, the plaintiff's lawyers shifted their focus from a damage class action to a class claim for injunctive release. Um, For a period of four years, Subway agreed to implement certain measures to ensure, to the extent practicable, that all foot-long sandwiches are at least 12 inches long. The settlement acknowledged, however, that even with these measures in place, some sandwich rolls will inevitably fall short due to the natural variability in the baking process. You can't guarantee it's going to be a foot. The parties also agreed to cap the fees of the lawyers at $525,000. Judge Edelman approved the settlement. Well, okay, what happened then is a a guy objected, a class member, somebody who bought one of the subs, objected and argued this settlement doesn't do anything for the people who were supposedly victimized by Subway sandwiches. All this does is make the lawyers money. Um, Judge Edelman, well, he decided to give the lawyers money. Well, the Court of Appeals reverses. They say this class action seeks only worthless benefits for the class. In other words, it doesn't help the consumer at all and yields only fees for the lawyers. It is no better than a racket and should be dismissed out of hand. That's what, again, the guy who's arguing against this, and the judge says that's an apt description of this case. So here you have the United States Court of Appeals in a decision written by Judge Diane Sykes looking at something that we've been talking about for years. There are legitimate class actions. A class action is where you have a a corporation or an entity that um, has done something wrong. But if it's only one person that sues, well, that person can't afford to hire lawyers. And so what you need to do is you need to have a class. Everybody who might have been affected adversely, you get together. And then because you're talking about thousands of people, you have some pressure. The problem is you have some sleazy class action lawyers. And this is not everybody who handles class action work who see this as a way to make money. And this is precisely what happened in the Subway case. All right, you had these people. They see this. They say, we're going to sue Subway. Um, Even though there's really no merit to the claim, Subway's not going to want to fight this thing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to settle. But the settlement doesn't do anything to help the people who are part of the class, you and me, who supposedly, you know, were were ripped off somehow because we might have ordered a foot-long sub and it was only like 11 and three-quarters inches long. Who does this benefit? It benefits the lawyers who are collecting $525,000. And the Seventh Circuit says, nope. We are not signing off on this. This is, I love the phrase, no better than a racket, and it should be dismissed out of hand. So a big blow to, again, the sleazy lawyers who are trying to enrich themselves, uh, my opinion, abusing the class action cases. And Bottom line is, if you go to Subway, well, maybe the sandwich is going to be 12 inches long. It might be 11 and three quarters inches long, but you're getting the same amount of meat, and the lawyers aren't going to be getting half a million dollars. All right. Coming up in just a couple minutes, I had a conversation with somebody on Saturday night who who floated this very, very provocative concept. What if Donald Trump dumped the Republican Party? We're going to discuss it next. Stick around. It's 958. 
It's 10.08. This is Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. I, I, I love this decision, um, just essentially slapping down these class action lawyers. If you're just tuning in, um, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which handles all federal appeals for Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin, just slapped down these lawyers who had filed a class action lawsuit on behalf of you and me, any of us who had ever purchased a Subway sandwich, alleging that, gee, there's a possibility that foot long, because of variances in the way you bake the bread, it it might only be, you know, 11 and a half or 11 and three quarters uh, inches. Well, uh, the, the Seventh Circuit failed to, I mean, the way it worked out is, after the settlement, the class, that is you and me, we got nothing out of it because... Um, Subway, all they had to do was put a disclaimer on saying, well, you know, it's possible because of the way bread bakes that it might not actually be 12 inches. All right, doesn't change something that's common sense that everybody should have known. The lawyers were taking half a million dollars out of the settlement, um, and Seventh Circuit said, no, we are not going to sign off on these deals that these scummy lawyers go into where they make all the money and nobody in the class actually benefits. And so they slapped it down, and it, it's it's long overdue. And again, this isn't a knock on legitimate lawyers who bring legitimate class action lawsuits. There is a role for that. The problem is you've got too many lawyers chasing too few, too few businesses, amounts of business, and somebody says, some kid in Australia puts up a picture on, on Facebook saying, look, the Subway sub, it's only like 11 and 3 quarters inches long. Then we're going to file the class action lawsuit knowing that you're not going to benefit. Nobody's really harmed by this, and you're not going to really benefit anybody except it's a way to make a half a million bucks for the law firm. And really glad to see Diane Sykes who is the one who wrote the opinion, but the Seventh Circuit in general slapped this down. All right, Saturday night, I was, um, I, I had a beer with some people. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you who. I, actually, very, very prominent people. And I, I sat down, and we were talking about sports and politics and things like that. And, and one of the people, I was, I, I said, Jeff, I, I, I've got this theory, and everybody thinks I'm crazy, <laughs> but, but I, I want to run this theory by you and, and see what you think. And interestingly enough, yesterday's Washington Post had had a columnist that advanced the same theory. Now, now here's the background on this, um, and I understand that many people don't believe polls, but if you if you do believe the polls, President Trump is struggling in them. You know, his approval rating is around thirty some percent, thirty four, thirty five percent. Right among Republicans. His approval rating is surprisingly low as well. Seventy to eighty percent of Republicans approve of the job he's doing, which means he's lost a huge chunk of Republicans. But even among the Republicans who approve of the job he's doing, his support, again, if you believe polls, is soft. Um, Only about 50 percent of Republicans strongly approve of what he's doing. So, again, he's got soft support among Republicans compared to for example, other presidents. All right, on top of that, President Trump is is picking fights with anybody who he views as, as somebody who's going to get in his way. Um, it's not just Democrats. He's taken on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He regularly takes on, you know, Paul Ryan, when Paul Ryan does something or doesn't do something quickly enough for him. Um, President Trump has taken on John McCain. He's taken on Arizona Senator John Flake. He's taken on his own attorney general, um, Jeff 
Jeff Sessions when it suited his purpose. And most recently, he, he went after one of the guys who's been one of his biggest supporters, you know, over over the years, which has been um, Bob Corker, who is the a senator from Tennessee, who is the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman. You know, what did, what did Corker, and Corker has been one of Trump's earlier supporters and been one of the guys who has vigorously supported him. Um, but, but Corker was critical of what Trump said in Charlottesville. And, um, you know, Trump decided the other day to, to take off on Corker. Strange statement by Bob Corker, considering that he is constantly asking me whether or not he should run again in 18. Tennessee is not happy. So, I mean, Donald Trump, he takes on the Democrats, but he takes on everybody. It's sort of this persona that he, he had that appears to be um, not just fictional, the, the thing that he had on The Apprentice. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. So he's going after Republicans as frequently as he goes after Democrats. So the guy was having, one of the people I was having a beer with on Saturday night said, you know, Jeff, what would you think? What is the possibility of Trump abandoning the Republican Party and essentially going independent? And I, I kind of just sort of, I brushed it off because I thought, well, that's, you know, that that's not going to happen. But here, Washington Post saw this yesterday. This is a story. What if Trump ditched the GOP? Here's how they write it. Um, After attacking pretty much everybody else, President Trump is now battling his own party. In recent days, Trump has um, upped the infighting ante, openly tangling with GOP leaders of the House and Senate, along with Jeff Flake and now Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bob Corker, who has questioned Trump's ability. Trump's most significant feud for the moment is with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Um, So... Then they say, okay, there's a couple different options. Maybe Trump is trying to motivate the team, motivate the Republicans to come around to him in his own kind of Trumpian way. Um, Another theory is that he's just lashing out and he really doesn't have a plan. He's just thin-skinned and anybody who says anything about him, he's got to retaliate. But here's what the Washington Post writer writes. Maybe there's also an option C. What if Trump, fed up by a lack of progress, and loyalty is ready to take on his own party. What if having systematically attacked what seems like every other institution involved in American government, the judiciary, the intelligence community, the press, the election process, law enforcement, Congress, that now he's set to attack and undermine the institution whose nomination he commandeered to obtain the presidency? What if he simply ditched the Republican Party, either officially or in spirit? Then the columnist goes on to write, it's not entirely far-fetched. This is a guy who has changed his party affiliations repeatedly, you know, after all. And while Trump seems to be throwing in the towel on his and the GOP agenda, um, this is a man who doesn't lack for self-confidence and isn't afraid to fire people when things go wrong. Why should the GOP be immune to being fired? All right, 414-799-1620. What would happen? If Trump were to fire the Republican Party, would this be something that Trump supporters would see as a good thing? Is this a way he talks about wanting to drain the swamp? Is this the way to do it, just to say, look, I know I got elected running on the Republican ticket, but the Republicans aren't moving along with me in the direction I want to go, so I'm going to form, I don't know, my own independent party. It is the party of Trump. 
Would that be a success or a disaster? 414-799-1620. I will tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss next. I, again, I... Somebody was having, I was with at dinner on Saturday night, was, was saying, was throwing this out, and I kind of just dismissed it as being almost, you know, bizarre, but now it is apparently a theory that is being circulated. What would happen, and would you like to see, would you like to see the president simply say, hey, I, I'm, I'm not a Republican anymore, I'm not a Democrat, I am an island unto myself, come follow me. 414-799-1620, we discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1017, this is Jeff Wagner. It's 1019, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, Hurricane Harvey rocks the Texas coast over the weekend. The latest on residents coping with the aftermath during Wisconsin's afternoon news with John McCure. That begins at 3 o'clock here on WTMJ. All right, that guy I was talking to on Saturday night in the Washington Post, both floating this idea what if Trump ditched the Republican Party? I mean, he attacks Republicans with the same venom that he attacks Democrats and anybody else who gets in his way. Um, would there be support for a new party of Trump? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're first. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Jeff. Yeah, I think uh, you, he might be on to something. Uh, Trump is hit like uh, he's hitting Democrats and Republicans. And uh, he just wants his agenda done. And basically, people that want their agenda done uh, might be just supportive of this. There's an underlying thing of this. The further point I have is maybe that there's something underlying here that the far left and the far right are losing their party's uh, support. And there might be some new parties coming around that want to have a moderate left and moderate right that actually do something in in Washington. And Trump do you think Trump could get any, Do you think Trump could get anything done if he were to renounce the Republican Party and just say he, he's going to be Donald Trump? I think uh, there might be. If he says that, there might be some Republicans and Democrats that just say, uh, "Well, we have to get on this guy's bandwagon and get something done." I don't know. Otherwise, nothing's going to get done. Um, thanks for the call. I guess. I, I, well, I mean, here, for example, I, I, let, me, let me share an email I have with a text I have from Dan. This would not shock me. Trump is very is a very pragmatic businessman. Parallels to Teddy Roosevelt and the Bull Moose Party. With a few moderate, yeah, but look how that turned out for Teddy Roosevelt. With a few moderate Republicans in the Senate and the Democrats, he would have a working majority, at least in that chamber. I mean, but, okay, but here, here's the problem with that. I mean, th- th- there's nothing about Donald Trump's approach that, that has been moderate. Donald Trump has, has appealed to the far right wing of the Republican Party. Donald Trump is the guy who says we're going to build this wall and we're going to make Mexico pay for it. And the, the it's the moderates um, in the Republican Party who are saying, well, that, that makes no sense. I, I mean, it's just I, I don't see this as appealing. I don't see Donald Trump as having a, a cross-party appeal that goes to the, the middle ground. Um, this isn't a guy who's trying to unite Republicans and Democrats. It's a guy who's staked out a, a position to the right of, I think you could argue, the mainstream Republican Party. If he does something like this, I guess on the one hand, it might be the best thing, big picture, long term for the Republican Party, but it it splinters, at least short term, the Republican Party, and it seems to me it guarantees that Trump gets nothing done, and it also guarantees that a Democrat wins in 2020. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to um, Jeremy and Racine. Jeremy, you're on 620 WTMJ. I think take my call. I think that would uh, be a political suicide take for Donald Trump to do that. If you do that, 
you're basically telling the GOP you don't need them anymore and coming on re-election time, the GOP can reallocate its, its yeah. personnel time and resources to a candidate of their choosing. That means he's going to have to not only deal with the left, but he's going to have to deal with the right uh, on top of it. So I, I can't see him being able to sustain his own re-election bid if, if he decides to just, just branch off and could you see him? Okay, done I, I agree so. with you, Jeremy. Could you see him doing this though? I mean, because uh, I, mean, I don't think he's that dumb. Because he, the GOP, regardless of their differences, that's a huge asset for him to have. Yeah. That would make him an incumbent. So I don't see him doing that logically. I, it just doesn't make sense. So why do you think he is so inclined to pick fights with? members of his own party, you know, the, the, Bob Corker, you know, Mitch McConnell, Jeff Flake, John McCain. What, what, do you think it's part of a master strategy, or is this just he lashes out at anybody who criticizes him? I, I think it's these are knee-jerk reactions that he does. I really do. I think it's a habit that he's been doing for, for decades, and I don't think he's going to change much when he gets in the White House. Yeah, all. no, I, th- I I agree. I mean, I don't think, see, I don't think this is, and, and I understand there's some of you out there that don't think I give the president enough credit in this regard, but I, I agree with you completely. I don't think that this is, I don't think that going after Republicans like Mitch McConnell or, or going after, you know, guys like Paul Ryan, I don't think this is part of some strategy. I just think it's the way he, he reacts. He wakes up at 2.30 in the morning and he's got a wild hair up a certain part of his anatomy and then, then he takes to Twitter to do this. I, I don't think there's some massive scheme saying, hey, if, if I criticize Bob Corker or if I criticize Jeff Flake or if I criticize John McCain, that's going to bring me closer. I mean, and you saw how this backfired with um, when he went after his attorney general, Jeff Sessions. I mean, one attack after another. Well, Jeff Sessions was very, very well liked in in the in the U.S. Senate among Republicans, and I think a lot of Republicans were saying, "What do you, what do you hope you're trying to accomplish?" If Donald Trump thinks he can lead his own political movement independent of the Republican Party, okay, that that's a political movement that I think is going to be polling at at fifteen or twenty percent. Um, it'll be it'll be Ross Perot all over again, except Trump has used the Republican Party to get himself elected. I, I think this would be disastrous. I have been called I, I wish he would just tone it down. I mean seriously, I, I I, I go back to what you know Paul Ryan did, essentially putting his career on the line to try to advance you know health care reform, got something passed, and then what's the first thing President Trump says? Oh, this is this is this is horrible. I mean, this is really mean. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Mr. President. I mean, thanks a lot. Let's talk to uh, Tony in Brookfield. Tony, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Yeah, I was just wondering why doesn't the Republican Party just fire the president? He doesn't work with the with his with his party anyway. He kind of disregards them. He criticizes everybody. So I think the Republican Party should should say you're, you're on fired, your own and we'll do our best that we can fire the president because it shouldn't be the other way around. He's not a very good Republican, and he's really betrayed the party most of the time, and with a wall and all the rest. That really no Republican wants that unless they're crazy. And so I would just say, fire the president. He doesn't. He's not a Republican. Um, yeah, the party. Thanks. To the, the party has moved on. I, I. I guess it is interesting that I. I. I mean, I hear all this conversation about we want to find a middle ground. I just. 
and again, I'm the one that, that says it's important to separate style from substance when it comes to President Trump. And I think most many of us find his style to be off-putting. But at least on substance, I, I mean, I, I think he's governing as a conservative. But I mean, it, it's, it's, I don't see a middle ground that's emerging here. I have a text, I'm a moderate, and he is very unappealing to me. I mean, that's that's part of, of the issue. If, if you decide to bail on the Republican Party and become an island in and of it yourself, all right, at that point in time, do you – do you bring people do you bring people who aren't republicans along with you in any significant number and do those people then increase your popularity for all the mainstream republicans that you're going to lose and my answer is no but again as i look at this it's just something interesting could i see president trump waking up one day and say okay i'm not a republican anymore i i'm i'm just going on my own I don't think that's as far-fetched as I might have initially thought on Saturday, the more I think about it. Not predicting it's going to happen, but my goodness, if you're picking as many fights with members of your party as you are with people with the opposition party, what's the point of being a Republican? 1028, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. What does the Packers defense have to do to make this team a Super Bowl favorite? Packers Radio Network studio host Dennis Krause is a guest of Wayne Larrabee in his latest edition of the Play-By-Play podcast. It's up now on WTMJ Mobile. You go to WTMJ.com. You click on the mobile app. You'll see um, Wayne's podcast, but you can also download a number of our other podcasts. I know a lot of people do that with this program, and I greatly appreciate it. If you can't hear all three and a half hours, no problem. We've got it up on the podcast. You can check that out. All right. This is going to be very, very controversial. Um, Going back about 30 years ago, Congress um, passed – it's called the 1033 program, and what this program did – was it allowed local police departments, state police departments, local police departments, to request that when the military, when the federal government had surplus stuff that they were going to get rid of, um, the, the local police departments, the local sheriff's departments, the state patrol, whatever, could request this material. So rather than it being scrapped, as long as it had a useful life, it could be sent to a, a local police department for it to be used. Now, th- this program, when it started, um, again, it, it's recycling stuff that still has, you know, useful purposes. But it, it's again, the, the military is getting newer things. It originally started as a way to enlist local police departments, and when I say local, again, I mean sheriff departments, cop police departments, etc. It, it was enlisting them in the war on drugs. It gradually morphed into helping police departments in the war on terrorism. So um, you would have occasions where, you know, if you would see a police response, sometimes some of the things they had came from the federal government. Now, Barack Obama, who was nothing if not politically correct and worried about appearances, when remember you you had the, the riots in Ferguson, Missouri, and the police responded, and they had things like um, 
you know, armed personnel carriers, like that they put the police in the personnel carriers so they didn't have to be exposed to the crowd that was throwing bottles and things like that. Um, so they also, the police had some heavy-duty weapons when, you know, they were responding to the riots in Ferguson. Not liking the optics of it, Barack Obama issued an executive order which essentially said that this sharing program is going to be greatly curtailed and that um, armored vehicles, for example, those vehicles that, you know, those military vehicles that, you know, would protect police if people were throwing rocks and bottles and tear gas canisters at them, um, armored tracked vehicles, um, aircraft vehicles um, that were weaponized, 50 caliber firearms and ammunition, camouflage, things like that, those can no longer be shared with local police departments. So even if the local police department says, hey, we'd really like one of these armored track vehicles because this gives us a chance to, for example, deal with protesters, but but not expose our men and women to being you know, hit by bottles or rocks or whatever. Barack Obama said, nope, you're, you're not going to be allowed to do that because essentially I don't like the optics. This gives the idea that the local police department is militarized, so we're not going to share th- this surplus material with them. There's nothing that says, I guess, that the local community couldn't go out and, and buy I- its own armored track vehicle, but but they couldn't get it from the federal government. Okay, the report, and Jane was just talking about this, is the Attorney General is apparently saying that the Trump administration is preparing to lift Obama's ban on the transfer of some surplus military equipment. Um, So a lot of police departments have been saying, hey, look, it's silly to get rid of this stuff. You know, we need this when we are confronting You know, we need this for self-defense, largely, you know, when we are confronting some of these large crowds, and it's just dumb to to not give it to us. And apparently the Trump administration is about ready to roll back the Obama rules. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Nobody, nobody, nobody makes a police department, for example, request, you know, one of these types of you know, arm, for example, an, an armored tracked vehicle, which is purely a defensive vehicle. Nobody makes a police department request it. But you use this in riot situations. You would theoretically use this in hostage situations where you have an, an armed shooter or something like that. Nobody makes the departments request it. I think Obama's decision was foolish in the extreme when he made it. It was politically motivated and put the lives of law enforcement officers at risk. If a local police department wants an armored tracked vehicle, for example, to use in hostage situations or in riot situations, and the federal government has one, instead of putting that vehicle on the boneyard or the scrapyard, it's crazy, at least in my opinion, not to give it to the local police department. And if the reason you're not giving it to the local police department is your you being the federal government is worried about the optics, well, let the local police department worry about that. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I thought this was a bad decision when the executive order 
was issued by President Obama back in 2014, I have not changed my position. If a local police department wants access to surplus military uh, materials because they think they can use it in an effort to help provide better police services for their community or protect their officers or civilians, why wouldn't we give it to them? 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1042. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1046. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We're going to double back on this conversation about the surplus military equipment going to police departments for just a moment, in just a moment. But first, um, I am very pleased to be joined on the line by the one of the many Congress Republican congressmen from the state of Wisconsin, Glenn Grothman. Congressman, good morning. Always glad to be on the show, Jeff. Now, Congressman, there is a controversy involving Republicans who aren't having town halls. You're um, you're you're, uh, you're going to be wading into this. You're having a number of town halls that are scheduled. Right today, right in your listening area. Right now, I'm flying down I-43 to a town hall at 11 o'clock at the River Hills Village Hall, and then we're going to do three this afternoon or this evening in Ozaki County. We're going to be at the Mequon Library at two o'clock which is, happens to be the library I'd study in when I was in high school. So we'll return to where I, was, where I did research in high school at the Mequon Library at 2 o'clock. We'll be at the Cedarburg Police Department at 4 o'clock, and we'll be at the Port Washington City Hall at 6 o'clock. So it'll be an Ozaki County Day. What, uh, what are some of the things that you're hoping to accomplish at the town halls? Um, what do you expect, expect you're going to be discussing? Well, I think people hopefully will bring up issues of welfare, issues of budget. Uh, we know they're going to bring up some issues on immigration. We think they're going to bring up issues on climate change and, of course, health care, because we haven't really come up with a replacement of Obamacare yet. It'll be interesting to see what people say. I do the town halls because you are right, Jeff. People are criticized if they don't do the town halls. I get around my district plenty and other places. I spent a lot of time this weekend at the Matwa County Fair. So I talk to a lot of people not in a town hall setting, but there are a few days in which we like to do what they used to do and do a <coughs> official scheduled town hall. Um, how how has the reception been, Congressman? I mean, we, we, we've seen... You know, some of these town halls quickly degenerate into shouting matches, and there's the organized protests. You know, what has been your experience as you go out and do them? Well, this is the first one the day of this set. The last time we did them, I think there were some people who kind of came with signs and were organized and that type of thing. But I think people in Wisconsin, uh, in my district, I hope I'll still be saying this tomorrow, <laughs> are a little bit down to earth and a little bit more respectful. I mean, there were a lot of people who were disappointed that Hillary Clinton didn't didn't win last time, and they show their disappointment by coming out and the questions they ask and the signs they carry. But uh, I think they've all been civil. I can't say anybody, you know, tried to talk over me or yell at me. Some of these people ask their questions out of turn, but you're always going to get that. But I think overall in Wisconsin we are, what do they say, Minnesota nice? We're Wisconsin nice. <laughs> Got it. Um, as long as I've got you and you're heading out to the town hall, let, let me ask you a couple issues in advance. I mean, obviously, um, health care reform, at least for the moment, appears to have died in the U.S. Senate. How disappointing do you find that to be? It's disappointing, and I hope the Senate doesn't give up. You know, I happened to be in the Senate the night the uh, last effort failed, and I was disappointed Mitch McConnell didn't bring it back in a month. John McCain didn't say he wouldn't vote for anything. John McCain said he wanted to have some committee hearings and some Congressional Budget Office estimates. 
if I were Mitch McConnell and I really wanted to pass something, I'd say, okay, John McCain, we're going to have some committee hearings. We're going to get a Congressional Budget Office estimate, and then we're going to have a new vote the first week in September. He didn't do that. So I wish Senate leadership would not give up on something. Uh, and I also wish that the Senate and House would work more together. One of the frustrating things in Washington compared to Madison is I don't think the two houses work together enough, and that's really not right. We're talking to Congressman Glenn Grothman. Congressman, I know when we've spoken before and when I've spoken to some of your other colleagues, um, health care reform kind of problematic, but a lot of there was a lot of optimism that we would see some meaningful tax reform before the end of the year. Is that still on the table? Do you think that's likely to happen? Uh, I'll be surprised if it doesn't happen. I think the first plan out there called the Ways and Means Plan was quite frankly too skewed to the rich. And I've weighed in very strongly behind the scenes. And I think Donald Trump has weighed in uh, saying that he felt the first Republican congressional effort was weighted too much to the rich. So I was glad Donald Trump was looking out for the average guy against some of these congressmen. And I'm looking out for the average guy against some of these congressmen. Um, I, I always feel in our society we do a lot to take care of the people who don't do much for themselves or do less than they should. And, you know, we certainly have an overregulated society, but we have our we're very wealthy. But the average guy isn't looked out for enough. So I think we're going to get tax reform done. But I will weigh in strongly with what I think Donald Trump is weighing in strongly behind the scenes, and that is the initial House plan has to change, and we have to do more for the middle class. Uh, since you mentioned the president, my, my guess is that at your various town halls today, um, that's going to be a, a subject, especially you know in the wake of you know what happened in Virginia. Um, what kind of job do you think the president's doing? Were you troubled a little bit by his remarks? Have the media taken this out of context? What do you think? I happen to be in the car. If you're talking about his remarks after Charlottesville, right. I happened to be in the car the Monday after that happened. I happened to listen live to his comments that Monday, and there were three different days he talked. I thought on Monday he did a fantastic job. I haven't looked at transcripts on what he did on, on the Saturday before the couple of days after. I'll say this about Donald Trump. I think what he's doing as president is good. I like the fact that he's looking out for the middle class on these tax cuts as opposed to some Republicans who put together a plan tilted towards, what else can I call it, the idle rich. So I like him on that. I think what he did on Obamacare reform, uh, hoping the Senate would soften things up a little bit, I like that where, again, he showed the compassion he has. I think he tweets too much. I've only met him really once since the election, and I think when he tweets, he sometimes comes across unprofessionally and it hurts him. I'm a little bit afraid he's going to be the flip side of Barack Obama. Barack Obama, people didn't like his policies, but they liked him. And I think if people look what Donald Trump is doing, they'll like his policies, but they won't like him because he tweets too much. And I I, I have a request to see him again. I think when he speaks off the top of the cuff, uh, you know, a lot of politicians, they have their staff, they talk very scripted, they read something their staff gave them. Donald Trump speaks top of the, you know. Off the top of his head, yep. Right, and as a result, you know, there's a reason why politicians sound like politicians. You can't get in trouble. Uh, but uh, I, I wish he would, you know, be a little bit more judicious in what he says. I, I am sure they're going to prosecute this guy who drove that car and killed that woman and in uh, Virginia to the maximum law, I wouldn't be surprised if he never gets out of prison for the rest of his life. 
And Donald Trump will do that, and I'm glad he's doing it. Uh, but I wish he would, you know, take a little more time before he, he talks sometimes. But like I said, I think compared to the average congressman, he does a better job of looking out for the average guy. Okay, so uh, Congressman Grothman, you're going to be in Ozaki County today. One more time, if people want to see you well, for well, town halls. Off. Okay. Mequon, where I used to study as a high schooler. At 2 o'clock in the Weinberg Library in Mequon. 4 o'clock, the police department in Cedarburg. 6 o'clock, the city, uh, city hall in Port Washington. Got it. And you're on your way to one right now, right? I'll be in River Hills right now. It's kind of late, but there's still time to run over to the River Hills Village Hall. Okay, so for anybody who says Congressman Glenn Grothman isn't having town halls, today today disproves that, right? Yep. Okay. Good enough. Thanks a lot for the call, Congressman. Nice talking to you. Yep. Okay, take care. That is Congressman Glenn Grothman. We, I, I've said this before. We, we go back a long time. Um, Glenn was... He was on the debate team for Homestead High School when I was on the debate team for Nicolay High School. So we have known each other for a, a long, long time. So he's he's conducting the town hall. So if you want to, if you have an, want to have an opportunity to ask him, and I it actually, um, you you can agree with Glenn or or not on, on different issues. And as a matter of fact, we we disagree from time to time. But he, you you know where you stand with Congressman Grothman, and he's um, he's got some very very he's got bedrock principles that he he sticks to. And again, agree with agree with him or disagree with him, he's always um, you you like I say you you know where he is coming from. So if you want to attend one of his town halls, um, Ozaki County going on today, number of different opportunities. It's ten fifty five. This is Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. There's a looming government deadline that, if ignored, could cause your health care rates to soar. What does Washington need to do to avoid this? Get the entire story during Scafidi and Billstat, 135 this afternoon. All right, coming up in less than 10 minutes, Tom Barrett appears to be serious. If he doesn't get permission to add a half percent sales tax into for the city of Milwaukee, and he's not, he appears ready to seriously not fill 84 police positions and 70-some poli- positions in the fire department. All right, what is that going to do to the city? Plus, if you want to understand how out-of-control crime is in Tom Barrett's Milwaukee, here's something to think about over the break. Story, story is, WTMJ reporting, the U.S. Postal Service says crime is so out of control. Well, this is me saying it's so out of control. U.S. Postal Service is indefinitely stopping some deliveries in Milwaukee. Residents along 10th and Oklahoma got a letter in the mail from the Postal Service saying packages will temporarily need to be picked up at the local postal office. U.S. uh, Postal Service supervisor said this is an effort to protect customers after a spree of package thefts in the area. Let me translate. Crime in Tom Barrett's Milwaukee is so out of control that at least in one area, the Postal Service won't even deliver packages anymore because they're going to be stolen. And he might seriously propose getting rid of cops. We will discuss. It's 1059. It's 10.08. This is Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. Okay, right before the break, I I was telling you that Tom Barrett's Milwaukee has become so dangerous and so crime-riddled 
that we, we do we, we already know certain things. We we know that when it's cold outside, you cannot leave your car unattended and idling in your own driveway, much less in front of your house. Because if you do it for more than 30 seconds, there are roving bands of thieves that are driving by and they will steal your car. So we, we understand it, it is that situation. We know that you now, if you are, I don't know, sitting in your car or getting out of your car or walking into, say, a convenience store to get yourself a soda, well, you, you have to be constantly aware because as you're walking out of that convenience store, you may be jumped and attacked by teenagers or other people. You might be hit with brass knuckles as, as people try to steal your cars. People who have been committing many, many crimes and continue to be out on the street as a general rule to commit more crimes. Well, now the latest development is the Postal Service has announced that in one area of the city, residents along 10th and Oklahoma, you, you they're not going to deliver packages anymore. If you have a package, um, you're going to need to go to the post office and pick it up. And the reason is not because they don't have enough postal workers to deliver them, not because the postal workers are refusing to deliver them, but this is an effort to protect customers after a spree of package thefts in the area. Apparently what they believe is going on is you have thieves that are following mail carriers and they're watching people deliver packages. And as soon as the mail carriers deliver the packages and are out of sight of the mail carriers, what happens is the thieves go up and, and they steal the stuff. Um, uh, the story I'm looking at that they reported on today's TMJ4, um, one woman says, you know, my, my husband, he, he watched this happen. The package was delivered across the street, and then within minutes, somebody came up and picked up the package. The kid looked like he was reaching in back, and he slammed the door. The incident was reported to police. Postal Service says that several open packages were dumped in the back alley. They were checking out every porch and looking for packages. So what's happening is, you know, they're going through, they're following the postal carrier. As soon as the postal carrier leaves, they steal it within minutes. Then they go into some alley, and they look at it and say, okay, is this something we want or not and if it's if your package isn't deemed thief worthy well they just kind of leave the open package in an alley but this is going on the postal service won't even deliver mail or at least packages to 10th in oklahoma i mean it has gotten that bad so against this backdrop the mayor of the city of milwaukee is about ready to come out with a new budget proposal and keep in mind by my count today is actually the day I think, you remember um, Ed Flynn, we talked about this earlier, when the Fire and Police Commission directed him to change his police pursuit policy, he asked for a 30-day extension within which to discuss it. By my count, that 30 days expires today. Now, I, I could be off a day or so, but certainly, if not today, sometime, unless there's another extension that's been given or is given, um, Ed Flynn's got to decide how he responds to, to that, because clearly, members of the Fire and Police Commissioner, hearing from aldermen in particular, are frustrated with the level of crime in this city, and you know they want to start trying to manage it a little better. Well, into this wades the mayor. Um, the mayor announced, well, uh, back in June that if the state did not approve a, a, a one-half cent sales tax, that would have to be, the way this would work is the state would have to give Milwaukee the green light to go to a referendum. 
and then the voters could decide at this referendum whether to impose a half-cent sales tax on top of all the other taxes that there are in Milwaukee. And the mayor's idea was we're going to have a half-cent sales tax, and what we're going to do is we're going to then use it um, for law enforcement purposes. Um, The mayor says that if he doesn't get that sales tax, um, Milwaukee, in his upcoming budget, could be forced to cut 84 police officer positions in next year's budget. Now, these aren't, this isn't necessarily firing 84 police officers. It's really the way I understand it, in the most cases, if not all cases, it's not filling vacancies on the police department. But the effect is the same. It's fewer cops on the street. Um, also, 75 firefighter positions may be, have to be eliminated as well if, if Milwaukee, the city of Milwaukee doesn't get this half-cent sales tax. Now, my sources tell me, and I think other people would say the same, that this in Madison is an absolute non-starter. There's just no way the Republican legislature and the governor are going to sign off on uh, allowing Milwaukee to, to have yet another increase in the sales tax. And I say yet another, I mean, because Milwaukee already has the added wheel tax and everything else. But the mayor, you know, saying, hey, if I don't get this, I mean, these police positions are going to go. Now, I have described this, and look, there's no, there's no question that, you know, law enforcement takes up a larger and larger percentage of the, the budget. At the same time, huge hunk of the budget is taken up for example in, in paying off in debt service paying off debt of, of borrowing that ha- has been done by the city of Milwaukee and I'm being told that the sales tax is an absolute non-starter so now the question becomes would Tom Barrett really really end up cutting 84 police positions and would the Common Council go along with it? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess, I, I just, as somebody who, who looks at not only the crime that goes on in the city on a daily basis, but has watched that crime now spread out throughout the suburbs, it is just, I, I look, I understand wanting to come up with more money. And personally, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't oppose, you know, the sales tax if it was going to be targeted to law enforcement. I mean, I've said that I've said that before. The question is how do you necessarily guarantee that that's going to happen? But regardless, I think it's interesting that the mayor, when you talk about this, the suggestion is, okay, we're going to we're not going to fill the police positions or we're not going to fill the firefighter positions instead of you know, maybe maybe those aldermanic, maybe the aldermen don't need as many aides or as staff members as they have. Or or maybe I, I don't really need that chief of staff who makes a lot of money. Or maybe, you know, we, we can look at the bureaucracy and get rid of some of the bureaucrats instead of getting rid of, oh, I don't know, 84 police officers. I mean, what's more important to the city of Milwaukee's growth and safety? Is it an aldermanic aide? or a mid-level bureaucrat that works for the mayor, or would it be perhaps a police officer? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Let's start with Eddie in Franklin. Eddie, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. We can call her. Love your show. Thank you. Um, you know, they had Barrett on the radio just last week, uh, and, and they were asking him, you know, what about the trolley money? And, and he kept sidestepping the question, 
saying that there was no property tax money being used for the trolley. But there are tax dollars sure. that are going to be used for the trolley. Sure. And so there was money available, and, and, and he kept trying to make it sound like, oh, no, like, like it's almost a free deal, like the trolley's a free deal. But there was money available, and his priorities are just totally jumbled because if now we have to raise the sales tax, and he's like, yeah, well, if we don't get this, we're, we're going to lose police officers. It's almost like strong-arming us, and it's ridiculous. Well, well, I mean, that trolley was totally unnecessary. Well, it is. No, thanks for calling. You see, I mean, here, here's the deal. I mean, look, you know, I, I understand that, that a lot of the, the trolley, the, to build the trolley, Tom's Trolley Folly, you've got federal tax money, and then you've got money coming in from a TIF district, but there is going to be... I don't know, probably in the neighborhood of a million dollars in in money that the city is going to be coming up with independent of that to help pay operating costs and stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's that that's interesting. Would you rather and again, that that doesn't pay for all of the police officers that he's talking about cutting. But would you rather have, I don't know, the trolley and let's say again, let's say it's a million dollars. All right. That doesn't solve the whole thing. But where would you rather spend that million dollars on operating costs for the trolley or I don't know how many police officers could you get for a, a million dollars. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Again, part of the large problem too is the city of Milwaukee's been borrowing and borrowing and borrowing, and they've got huge debt service payments. So money that that could be used, or perhaps you know, if they had been, oh, if they had borrowed less, money that they're using, you know, to pay off interest on debt. That perhaps, you know, might have been able to use to pay for police officers as well. But, I mean, here's the fundamental question. Is the mayor really serious when he proposes a budget that's going to cut 84 police officer positions? I mean, at a time where crime is arguably the number one issue affecting quality of life in the city of Milwaukee. Um, 414-799-1620, Daniel in Milwaukee. Daniel, you're on 620 WTMJ. Yeah, good morning. Hi. Jeff, how are you? Very well, thank you. Okay, is Barrett serious, do you think? Uh, yeah, he's serious, but Barrett's dropped the ball in many situations. As a matter of fact, just to let you know and the listeners know, I'm actually wrote in that I'm uh, going to be a candidate for 2020 for Mayor Milwaukee against Barrett, and I don't believe Barrett's going to rerun anyway. So mm-hmm. his wife's retired. You know, he's up there in the years. He's going to be, what, 60, 70, 64, I guess. So, oh, probably maybe a little bit older than that, I think. But regardless, I mean, what? All right, well, okay, but well, let's talk about the reality then. I mean, Tom Barrett says that that there's just not money. That it's the the police and fire budget has gotten out of control. I don't have enough money. I'm not getting enough money from the state. I need more dough. I can't do it. Do you buy that? Yes, I buy that. He's going to do it. You know, right. he's going to set a statement and and do it. But I, it's wrong. You know, there's money's available elsewhere in the city mind you they just built what 14,000 units for uh, the average joe on the east side along the river where mm-hmm. river works over there i mean do you realize that they actually misused funds from there low-income housing was a source where they got bonus money from there to build those homes so mm-hmm. they got a tax credit got it okay know. don't th- thanks for calling Dan. i don't don't want to get too far afield because I, I don't know anything about the, and the misuse of money. I'm just talking about priorities, which is where I'm, I'm coming down on this. I mean, and it, it, again, look, I I understand. And by the way, like I say, I would I would support allowing a referendum on a sales tax. You know, my problem is that a lot of times you wonder, is this money really used as it was going to be spent? I mean, you've got a wheel tax in the city of Milwaukee. All right, we, there, there's that wheel tax. Are the roads? Do they seem like they're materially any better? But I mean, I understand people have to pay to be safe. 
Carlos in Milwaukee. Carlos, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, i got a two questions for you. Sure. The first question is, what's going to be next? Uh, when they're done building the trolley, who's going to do the safety in the trolley? <laughs> Well, well, right. Well, I mean, and I think the mayor has been very, very clear. His plan with the trolley is to expand it all over the city because I think he realizes that this initial trolley line, it doesn't go anywhere people want to go. People aren't going to ride it. So the argument is going to be, well, the reason people don't ride it is because it doesn't go to enough places. So we need to run it up to Marquette. We need to run it to the um, to the new Bucks Arena. And we need to run it down to the south side. I mean, you theoretically could be looking at hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars to expand the trolley all over the area, and I don't know where that dough is going to come from. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a property in Milwaukee, a couple of properties, and it seems like it's, you know, it's getting crazy, crazy, and then uh, I feel like moving out of Milwaukee. I, I haven't seen no improvement in safety in Milwaukee. I mean, the crime is growing like yep. crazy, so what's next? That's my question. What's coming the next year? Well, I no, thanks for calling, and I, I don't know. I, it, it's 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 not getting better that's that's for sure at least in my opinion now look i also i want to be fair here i it's it's not all it's not all the, the it's not the police's fault i mean we did a story about a week ago where what where the, the woman has her house shot up and she's got to wait hours for 911 she calls 911 she's got to wait hours for the police to show up because they're out there dealing with more significant issues bullets flying into your house and they say well was anybody killed no um you know uh, are there still people out there shooting no okay well we'll get around to it what the heck does it say about a community where you call 911 you report that there's been bullets flying into your house and you're told well okay this isn't a priority we're too busy with other stuff can you imagine what the other stuff they're busy with and this is where the mayor is saying, well, you know, if I don't get bailed out by if I can't get this new tax on top of it, I'm going to get rid of 84 positions. No. I mean, here, here's the thing. You know, get rid of your high paid aides. You know, get rid of some of the assistance to the aldermen. Really, this is what we call the Washington Monument strategy. It's the idea that the federal government's going to run out of money. So we're closing the Washington Monument. Because then people will say, oh, we can't close the Washington Monument. We're coming there on a trip instead of, gee, we've got some bureaucrat that's making a hundred grand. Let's get rid of, let's get rid of them. I mean, it, it is this interesting thing. But if, if Tom Barrett really persists in this and, you know, one of our callers was saying that they didn't think he's going to run again. You want to talk about you want to talk about a budget proposal that pretty much guarantees that you will never, ever, ever be elected again. You float a budget that cuts 80 some cops and 75 firefighter positions. You do that. And it is political suicide. Jack on the northwest side. Jack, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hey, um, you know, Jeff, you mentioned that that postal thing. Right. Where they're not going to deliver the packages. Right. Um, one of the details you missed was that uh, they will attempt to deliver it, and if you're not there, they'll leave a slip for it, and you have to come and pick it up at the post office. Right. You're, in other, if you're not home. Right. Yeah, I live right down the street from you, and that's been the case for the last 15 years. That's most of Northwest Milwaukee. So that part, that neighborhood is just only a new one. That's all. Oh, so this, so what you're saying is this has been going on for a while. A lot of areas. Well, it's been are... going on for 15 years at least. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's that's nothing new. It's just mind. It's it's just mind-boggling to me that you know crime is so out of control that you can't leave a package on somebody's doorstep and not expect it to be stolen within a few minutes. Jeff, can I address the other thing that you brought up, and that was the priority of. 
of officers versus the trolley. Sure. Um, I had a tenant once who um, was two months behind on rent, and I said, if I see piles of um, electronic Christmas gifts under that tree, you're out right after Christmas. And I said, because you're not giving a basic priority to a safe roof over your kid's head. Right. And that's exactly what they did, and that's exactly what happened. And that's the same thing we're doing here. We're not taking care of the basics. We're going and buying a nice sparkly trolley, and we're not taking care of the basics. And now we have to borrow for the basics that we need, and that doesn't make sense. No, thanks. Well, it's just all a question of priorities. It's 1125. This is Jeff Wagner. Eleven twenty-seven. Jeff Wagner. Andrew sends me a text. Jeff, I own a house in the city of Milwaukee, and I can't get rid of it fast enough. Tom Barrett is like the kid who spent his lunch money on candy and is now uh, complaining about being hungry come lunchtime. He doesn't prioritize spending of tax dollars. Public safety should be number one. Now, in fairness, it, it's it's not just a matter of putting more cops on the street. I, I would like to hear the mayor using his bully pulpit say to call out the judges that take the dangerous juveniles who've, I don't know, stolen 20 or 30 cars and put them back out on the street. It would be interesting to see the the other side of that. Of course, that might be the height of political correctness because it's it It's a multi-crime from a law enforcement perspective. It's just not cops on the street. It's when you catch the bad guys, it's keeping them off the street, and that's the part that a lot of people in City Hall don't necessarily like to talk about. But at the same time, Cutting 84 spots, cop positions, or not filling them, um, I would say, let's see, is non-starter one word? I think that's a hyphenated word. But, man, political suicide and a complete non-starter. Oh, yeah. Let's see. Milwaukee police say 12-year-old boy shot on the south side. Milwaukee police said a 12-year-old boy was shot in an alley on the city's south side Sunday afternoon by a suspect who fired the shots from a vehicle. 2.55 in the afternoon, kid is out on the alley, and he is hit in a drive-by shooting. He's 12 years old. It's 11.29. It's 11.36, Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ. Well, um... There's a looming government deadline that if ignored could cause your health care rates to soar. What does Washington need to do to avoid this? Tune in. Scafidi and Bill Stat, 135 this afternoon. Okay, there, um, as much gun crime as we have on a regular basis in the city of Milwaukee, there was, there, there were a lot of firearms in one particular area of the city over the weekend. And you know what? I don't think there was any crime. I am, of course, talking about the NRA's educational thing that they had going on down um, at the Midwest Center. I don't call it the Midwest Center anymore, but down at the Convention Center. Um, of course, you, you had all sorts of dealers and distributors. You had thousands of people that were attending. And, and interestingly enough, I, I don't hear any reports of of people who were attending that NRA-sponsored event as being involved in, oh, say, the drive-by shootings or the carjackings or anything. Isn't that funny how that goes? But, of course, that's not what was predicted. You had the protesters say, oh, this is terrible. We've got the NRA coming to Milwaukee, and this is awful, and they're promoting gun violence. No, they're promoting, I don't know, 
how people can protect themselves if they think it is appropriate from the out-of-control gun violence that unfortunately plagues um, so many communities. But isn't that interesting? You had this big conference, you had this big convention, and, and you didn't, didn't, hear any, didn't hear any crimes coming, from, coming out of that or from the people who came to Milwaukee to attend that. Just kind of interesting. And next time you hear the police chief or the mayor you know, carry on about that, you might just want to think of it. All right. Here is an interesting story. Speaking of, of gun ranges, there is a – this is out of Georgia is where the story comes from, but it's it raises some of these kind of larger questions. It's a place called Hold Hide Academy, and it's – it's a licensed, uh, what's the description of this? It's a licensed, uh, accredited preschool and Montessori academy for children from kindergarten to second grade. Now, I take no position at all on whether this is a good school or a bad school. Because if you read all the things that are posted on the internet after this story exploded, you'll you get different takes. So I, I, I take no position on whether it's a good school or a bad school. But the reason we are talking about this is because last Wednesday, several of the school students, the first graders and the second graders, not the preschool students, but the first graders and the second graders, so this would be like six- and seven-year-olds, with the permission of their parents, so moms and dads all signed permission slips. The school took several of the first and second graders on a field trip to a place called High Caliber Firearms, which is a gun store and a range. And this is roughly 30 miles northwest of, of Atlanta. And the, the reason this has gotten all sorts of attention is that images of the children in the store some of whom are holding guns, I'll tell you about that in just a second, surfaced on Facebook, and then the Internet community exploded. How can a school take first and second graders to a gun range? What could possibly be going on? Um, you know, this is irresponsible. This is unacceptable. The school's getting all these terrible ratings, most of which are coming in after this decision. All right, the operator of the school says, yeah, we, we, we did this. Here's, here's why we, we did it. Um, we, were, we were studying about Annie Oakley, Davy Crockett, and uh, Bill Pecos, you know, per Georgia's required curriculum, curriculum. So we were studying about these historical figures. Um, what the owner said, this is what we were doing. We we took the kids to the gun range because, you know, some of them apparently thought that the sharpshooters' firing skills, that these, these stories that they heard about Annie Oakley and Davy Crockett, that that wasn't hard, that anybody could do that with these guns. So they, they take the kids to the firing range to set up a, a visit. And again, um, the students who made the trip Parents signed permission slips. Apparently, what they did is they showed them, first of all, they had a gun safety course, and then they showed them some of the firearms that people used in that day, in that time period. Um, one of the guns that they let them handle was uh, apparently a pistol that goes back to, you know, the, the 1800s. And that's one that a couple of them, you know, had their pictures taken with. 
Um, but nevertheless, people again, it's the heads are exploding, saying that you know this is this is this is horrible. Um, the kids, I don't believe, actually shot the guns, um, but but they were they were taken and they were let handle the guns. And people are just irate about it. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, the, the operator of this academy is defending him. Say, hey, this, this, we, were, we had this as part of our curriculum. What I wanted to do, and I notified the parents, I wanted to you know, let them see you know, what these firearms actually looked like. So, yes, we went to the gun range. Yes, they saw what these guns looked like. I think it's a legitimate educational thing. Now, for its part, the NRA has backed legislation teaching gun control to first graders, um, and the NRA um, f- recommends children as young as six who are interested in guns should be allowed to shoot them in controlled environments. Okay, 414-799-1620. Are you appalled and offended that under these circumstances, with the permission of the parents, uh, this school took first and second graders to a gun range? 414-799-1620. Candidly, of all the different things that are going to get me worked up, I think the school is getting a bad rap on this. And again, if the parents know about it, if the parents sign off on this, I don't have a problem with this. 414-799-1620. It's 11.43. What do you think? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 11.46. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The operator of the school says, our goal was to show students it was very difficult for Annie Oakley and Davy Crockett and Pecos Bill to be able to accomplish the things that they did with firearms. The kids who were taken in this range were only shown an unloaded 1894 Winchester rifle and a six-shooter from the same area era and all of their parents signed permission slips okay on our text line let's see have somebody to text in yes my head is exploding this is the most irresponsible thing that i've ever heard huh. the most the most irresponsible another text this is from kyle if they would have let the children handle a 15th century battle mace or a native american arrowhead as a history lesson would heads still be exploding this has nothing to do with the children being in any kind of danger more to do with anti-second amendment fanatics making a statement let's talk to matthew in menominee falls matthew good morning good morning what do you think what do i think um i think it's kind of crazy because these parents sign this permission slip and these children aren't even like shooting guns or they're not you know someone's putting in like an ar-15 in their hand they're just seeing the historical value of these guns in this situation um, well, that that's it, right? They, they, now, the difference is they are allowed, the kids were allowed to handle them, but they were, in fact, unloaded. But, yeah, they're, they're, they're yeah, not even they shooting. Were, they weren't trained to fully function the gun by any means. Right, right. They were able to see it. No, thanks thanks for calling. Now, see, this is, which is, I, I guess, when I'm, when I'm listening to this, my question is, okay, if instead of, Instead of going to the gun range and actually being able to handle these weapons, these, what, if they had, what if they had gone to the Smithsonian? In the, Amer- the Museum of American History, and, and gone and looked at some of the exhibits that feature firearms. Now, again, the difference, does it really make a difference? Because, you know, you're studying, I don't know, you're studying the American Revolution, and so you want to take a look at a, a period piece. Now, does it make a difference 
if um, you, you actually get a chance to handle the period piece or not. I don't know. It seems to me that that's a distinction without a difference. Now, I have a text. So by this logic, if their curriculum includes the Holocaust, they should take a field trip to see a gas chamber. If they study Hiroshima, they check out atomic bombs. Well, I, I, I don't know. If they were studying the Holocaust and you had access say, I don't know, to Auschwitz or something, would, would, we, would we say we, we don't take the kids there to see it? Now, again, I guess the question becomes what is, what is age appropriate, but it is merely, I don't know, if the curriculum is that you're studying Davy Crockett and you're studying Annie Oakley, if that's part of the curriculum, is it, I don't know, is it age appropriate to allow the kids to see what the guns actually looked like and to handle the firearms? Uh, but to me... It's it's the if the parents sign off on this now, I mean, I guess it's one thing if you you didn't have a choice and this was a surprise to the parents. But if this is part of the curriculum and mom or dad are okay with it, um, I guess my 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 situation is why would we care? That's the point. Mary texts me in Mount Pleasant. She says this is another case of. Honey, it's none of your business for the people making the complaints. If the parents were okay with it, others need to back off. I mean, again, what's what really is the fundamental difference between this field trip and again going to going to a museum if you're studying okay firearms of the time or you're studying these type of people? And I mean, is it really fundamentally different if the teacher says, okay, this is a replica of the firearm? It was used during the American Revolution. Look to see how this works. Is it any different than saying, okay, here, here's actually what one of these firearms is itself. It, you're not going to shoot it, but here, you, you, can, you can handle this. I mean, is that really that awful? Toby in Union Grove. Toby, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. Um, I look at it this way. If the parents were okay with it, absolutely nobody should have no opinion about it besides the parents. And I think it's a very unique way of this academy to teach the kids about the history yeah i mean it's clearly sort of outside the box you know thinking but again it's and let's face it the children were never i i I try to think okay what are really the objections were the kids ever in danger no i mean these these were unloaded firearms they'd gotten they'd been safety checked so you know they the, the kids weren't in any sort of danger does it glamorize firearms? Well, I don't know. It's just it, it's just showing the kids how difficult these feats, these people that they were studying, were accomplishing. I mean, my guess is none of these kids decided they were going to run out tomorrow and decide to shoot up a Seven Eleven. No, I agree. I mean, I just think if, if the parents were okay with it, nobody else should have to worry about it. And it's a very unique way of the way they went about teaching children. Yeah, I mean, right. Think, again, I mean, it's... To me, this is this is a field trip, and it is a it is hands on experience. Now, if parents decided that this was age inappropriate, and that's always see to me, that's always the question on field trips and things like this or curriculum. Is it is it age inappropriate? And if the parents, um, if the parents had decided, you know, no, you know, we we don't want our children even for this purpose and even under these circumstances you know we don't want our our children to see a firearm up close you know firsthand all right well i I guess i would respect that particular parent's desire but clearly this is a private school these are clearly parents who are sending their kids to this private school because they approve of the type of education that they are getting and if the parents don't have a heartache don't have heartache over it i don't think they're bad let's talk to dan in west Dallas. dan you're on 620 wtmj good morning 
Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I was calling several different things. One, if you don't even have to go to the Smithsonian. I go to the Milwaukee Public Museum, sure. and they have an arms display over there, ranging back from day one of the arms to current use. Right. You know, the kids can watch them there. Also, this last weekend, they had a Settlers' Day in West Allis, and a lot of the reenactors were showing the, everybody on the stage what the firearms are, how to use them, what they were used for, things like this. It's an educational purpose. Yeah. Not teaching the kids to go out and kill somebody. They're teaching them the education of firearms, and this is important. I didn't find this out till I went into the service, that just because you have a gun in your hand, you point it, you're going to hit something. You're not. You know, I, I'm glad you caught. I had forgotten about like all the various settlers' days and stuff that's out there, right? And you have the reenactors and and a gun. They, again, they they show the firearms to the kids so that they could understand what what they were like. You're exactly right. Should we now should we now say okay, no no kids can come to any of these sort of events because I don't know they might be traumatized or they might decide they're going to go out and become serial killers. No, thanks for the call. That, that's an outstanding point as well. Uh, again, if if you don't think your kid if you don't want your first or second grader exposed to this, I respect that. I respect that. But if the parents sign off on it, is it really anybody else's business? 